This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, much of what you read in the corporate media is pure propaganda, a fictionalized account of the world. Margaret Kimberly and other reporters unmask these lies before a packed crowd in New York City. We'll get a report on the racial dimensions of the struggle for socialism in Venezuela. And activists say F the police and their brutal presence in the New York subway system. But first, activist and author William C. Anderson says radicals should not bow to pressures to tone down their demands just to get along with the Democratic Party. Anderson co-authored a book called As Black as the Resistance and recently wrote an article for Truth Out titled, No Matter Who's Elected, We Must Keep Demanding More. Generally, what I was trying to get across was the work that we are doing in our movements is extremely important. And a lot of times people feel a little disillusioned or they lack some inspiration or they might feel down about if things are actually changing or not. But I think that elections are always a way to gauge a lot of the changes that are taking place in this country because what politicians are ultimately trying to do is co-op movements and appeal to mass movements in a way that shows that organizing is being effective. Because if it wasn't being effective, they wouldn't be trying to do that in the first place. So it's not so much that people should feel inspired, like, hey, we should put our faith in politicians, but it's more so the fact that people should recognize this is having an effect to the work that people are doing, because it's not like the establishment is going to try to appeal to people using what movements are doing unless it's actually taking root in people's minds and communities where folks are organizing. Yes, if there had not been the mobilizations of 2014 and 2015, it's inconceivable that many of these issues that are being debated by the Democrats would be talked about at all. And that includes, of course, reparations. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. There's a lot of different issues on the table that are being discussed in ways that I think a lot of people would have never imagined from healthcare to abolition. And we should be fair enough to ourselves and the tireless organizers to recognize that we've seen some pretty significant changes in Washington from democratic socialists and abolitionist proposals being put forth. And for what it's worth, I think about Joy James, who's warned that there's an attempt to appropriate abolition as well as organizers like Miriam Kaba. And they pointed out really that there's people using this word that don't actually know what it's mean. And you see it popping up in things like progressive prosecutor organizing. And so, you know, a lot of things get sucked into elections and into the establishment and are kind of parroted back 
in this way where they try to take the actual substance out of the work that grassroots organizers are doing. But it's just still important to recognize that organizers are being effective, and that's why this is happening. But is some of this a cynical circus, and I'm talking not about the organizers' work, but about what's happening in the Democratic primary and in the debates. So we see that Medicare for All is embraced by lots of candidates, but not by the Democratic Party as a whole, not by Nancy Pelosi. And the same, of course, with the Green New Deal, which Democratic corporate leadership looks at with disdain and contempt. I really think that we have to kind of get past this idea that we're ever asking for too much. I think sometimes that people think we're asking for too much or these proposals over here being put forth are a little bit too quote unquote radical or they're too expansive or they're this or that. That's something that we really have to push back against particularly when it comes to elections, the system is already taking too much. And we have to dispel this idea that we're asking too much because if we don't make the biggest demands possible, since the system is already taking too much, it's going to destroy us all if we allow it to. So I think that actually, when it comes to a lot of these election issues, that the ask should be much bigger and much more substantial than what's being demanded already. And I think that that's one of the things that comes to mind when we talk about what's on the table and and as far as like the cynicism and the the thinking around the practicality of what's being asked. Yes. Isn't the measure of the work of the organizer not in the attention that it gets from the corporate parties who are hostile to transformative change, but in how those issues resonate with the people? And if the parties don't come through, well, then the people know that there's got to be a change in the politics. Right, right. And you know, The thing about it is I'm thinking about how a lot of leftists particularly disparage the people they're supposed to be organizing by being condescending about the things people are involved in. And it's fair to critique, but how you do it matters. And this goes for everything from pop culture to sports and even elections. When we're thinking about how people are having things marketed to them by corporate party politics, right? Basically, what I'm saying here is if these organizing tactics that are happening at the grassroots level weren't working, then they just wouldn't even bother to to try to mimic it at all. The whole reason that the Democratic Party, for example, copies and mimics and tries to co-opt these movements is because they know that it is appealing to people. And so there's a process that has to happen where a lot of folks have to recognize this is working, this is being effective in a very big way, because that's why the parties are trying to take this messaging from us. That's why they're trying to take what we're doing and turn it into something that is caught up in, you know, Washington. 
But of course, the corporate parties don't just steal the message and then use it and contort it to their own purposes. They also absorb a lot of the organizers themselves. And I am making reference to Black Lives Matter people who become operatives for the Democratic Party, in effect. You know, that's always something that movements have had to deal with. There's a lot of people who are going to go into politics. And I think that at the end of the day, that there's not really anything that's too surprising about that. It's really kind of like par for course. And folks have to be really, really careful about this idea that we're going to reform our way out of the crisis that we're in. Because really, reformism and this sort of approach, thinking that, you know, incremental small changes will work over time, is that's really what that sort of mentality leads to is saying, you know, hey, I'm just going to go into the establishment and try to change things from the inside out. And people have always done that for a very, very long time. And there's always been pushback. And we just have to keep pushing back against it because it doesn't work and it's not effective. I think that we really need to be thinking about abolition instead of reform. What about the rise, the phenomenal rise, in the number of folks who are questioning capitalism? Now, we know, of course, that many of them don't understand what socialism actually is, but nevertheless, they like the sound and feel of the word. Right, and that is going exactly into what I'm talking about here. There are a lot of young people who are rejecting capitalism. And since that is the case, I think that it says something that you have the rise of organizations like DSA and kind of there's more representation happening within the Democratic Party with Democratic Socialists and folks who are talking about socialism, whether they're true to the principles of that in reality or not there's still a presence happening or a presence appearing in the Democratic Party that a lot of people would have never dreamed of seeing in their lifetime. And I think that that is exactly what I'm talking about when I say the Democratic Party and politicians are going to always try to use what they know is appealing to people. And they're going to try to follow the tide of people's changing sentiments and make that a part of the establishment so people will keep feeding into it and trying to play this game. Because ultimately, I think a lot of the people at the top know that this system is under threat if people are actually become fully aware of what they're up against and what this system's doing to us daily. That was author and activist William C. Anderson, who's also social media editor for Black Agenda Report. Margaret Kimberly, co-founder and senior columnist for Black Agenda Report, teamed up with acclaimed journalists Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté before a packed house in midtown Manhattan. The subject was propaganda, the lies that corporate media tell in service to U.S. imperialism. It's funny thing, when I was trying to figure out what to talk about, uh about propaganda. It's like, well, what propaganda do I talk about? It's, there's so, so much material there. Um, and just a few examples, Ukraine Gate now is, is uh, in the news. And there have been thousands of words written, uh, many hours of programming, 
But do they ever tell you that the United States overthrew the elected president of Ukraine? Uh, and that when the U.S. and other NATO nations deposed him, they put people in office, some of whom were just out-and-out -out Nazi sympathizers. You don't see any mention. You hear about Venezuela a lot. Maduro has to talk to the opposition. Well, he did. And when he did, and when he and opposition forces were on the verge of together jointly asking for an end to sanctions, the U.S. government dropped the hammer told the opposition not to talk to him anymore, and said Guaido is president. Syria, President Assad, gassed his own people, we're told, over and over again. But now there are two whistleblowers from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons who dissent from the official findings and, findings and publicly state they were rigged. So where to begin? There's so much. So I decided to stick with a uh, domestic issue and when you write and speak it's like well, what moves you what moves me the most and my, I had my own personal meltdown a few months ago um, when this phrase appeared Moscow Mitch <laughs> in uh, reference to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and it all started when he opposed efforts to uh, um, impose uh, verified voting paper ballots and so forth and um, of course, uh, there's more propaganda telling us that the Russian government, they didn't just collude, they hacked our voting system, and thus this moniker Moscow Mitch was born. Now, he does not want verifiable voting, that's true, but the reasons have nothing to do with Russia. The Republican Party lives and dies by its ability to steal votes, mostly from black people. There's voter suppression through felon disenfranchisement and voter ID laws. There's also actual theft and the changing of votes with these uh, mechanical systems. And the victims of these practices are mostly black people, but the news didn't mention this and neither did most black people, sadly. Uh, vote theft, or rather the cover-up of vote theft, is among the most prevalent uh, points of propaganda in the country. And McConnell ought to be exposed but for the reasons, for the right reasons. Um, we've seen two presidential elections since 2000 where uh, the outcome was determined by this. Bush did it in 2000, his, his brother disenfranchised black Floridians. Hillary Clinton, we're told, lost the Electoral College by only 78,000 votes. But there were thousands of uncounted votes in places like Detroit. Um, and lies by the corporate media and their collusion with the Democratic Party ensures that this is going to go on. And by the way, Democrats don't say anything about this either. But uh, I have a special kind of anger for the people who uh, we at the Black Agenda Report call the black misleadership class. They know the deal. They know why Mitch McConnell wants to steal votes, but they don't say anything because they're captives of the Democratic Party. Some fear biting the hand that feeds them, some are cynics, some may be true believers, but the end result is that this injustice goes on. Um, so, along comes 2016. A racist, failed real estate developer, and Trump is that, succeeded, the only, only thing he succeeded at was promoting himself through the media, and he defeated Hillary Clinton, who was a terrible politician, who had her own integrity issues, 
And that allowed him to squeak through in the Electoral College along with a vote theft. But neither she nor the Democrats say anything about the Electoral College. She's still hanging around. She's got something to say. Has she once said anything about the Electoral College? So the Democrats, they claim to be the inclusive party, the progressive party, but they're nothing of the sort. The differences between the two parties are small and getting smaller. And all they can say is that they're outwardly less racist than Republicans. After um, starting with Bill Clinton, when they decided to become the corporate, as a corporate back party as much as the Republicans, what did we get? Bill Clinton, media consolidation, welfare reform, reform that put millions of people into poverty, uh, bombing Serbia, pushing NATO expansion. Barack Obama bailed out the banks with trillions of dollars, destroyed Libya, tried to destroy Syria and never said anything about the black people who loved him unless his goal was to scold and dismiss them. And he's still doing that now, even though he's not president. So Trump was anathema to black people for very obvious reasons. Instinctively, we knew someone talking about make America great again wasn't talking about us. But he won and solidified black people's allegiance to this party um, that does nothing, including not win elections. And that's why, why otherwise smart people will talk about Moscow Mitch or collusion or some other such thing. And I think it's res Russiagate, um, I think it resonates because it's comforting to people. Um, it's hard to admit that uh, the Democrats are as bad as they are, that Hillary Clinton was as bad as she was, and it's easier to believe that some guy in a foreign country who you've been told is evil millions of times uh, uh, actually change the results of a, an election and not the party you cling to that raised a billion dollars and still couldn't get 78,000 more votes. But the cure for all this propaganda is to tell the truth. And who's going to tell it? The duopoly in this country, the political duopoly, is composed of a far-right party and a center-right party. I don't even know if the Democrats are center-right anymore. But they, uh, speaking of collusion, they collude with the corporate media and they dole out information as our misinformation uh, that benefits their crooked arrangement. So black people have gone from being the most savvy, most politically-minded group in the country, the most left-leaning traditionally, and now live in hope that the same intelligence agencies that destroyed our liberation movement are suddenly going to save us, save us from Trump. So we have so many lies going on here and propaganda is nothing but systematized lying um, that ramped up into high gear when uh, the system wanted to make uh, people who made demands go away. And that means history has to be disappeared, people have to be disappeared. And I'm glad I'm old enough to remember uh, a few days ago was the 50th anniversary of uh, enormous marches in Washington and around the country against the Vietnam War. It's estimated two million people. There are two marches, one in October, one in November of 1969. And if I didn't remember it myself, I might not know that it happened. So we're propagandized to believe that that never happened, which means you can't do it again, which means you have to rely on the electoral system. All you can do is vote. That's all you can do is vote. And you have to vote for the Democrats, and you can't ask them anything, you can't demand anything, because then you'll get Trump. 
But people in the rest of the world are in movement in Haiti, in Ecuador, in Bolivia. And many of us say, why doesn't that happen here? Because we propagandize more. So, uh, so here we are with Ukraine gate starting and um, the media and the, it's disgusting to watch these. I, I don't know if you, I, I can't stomach it for very long, these uh, Democrats fawning over some guy because he's in a uniform, but anyway. <laughs> So here we have a situation where people who are triggered by Trump are unable to think for themselves and never follow the logical path of naming and shaming the people whose corruption and its resulting ineptitude put him in office. I'm a... I was surprised to see after 2016 how so few people expressed any anger towards Hillary Clinton or the Democrats. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The master of propaganda was Barack Obama, and um, he's been proving that again with his words of late, but it's having less resonance, I believe. And we all remember hope and change, but if you were paying attention, you knew it was BS even then. Now he's running all over the world when he isn't giving speeches, getting paid half a million dollars, tell, wagging his finger and telling us, you can't ask for anything. You can't have anything you want. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to close now. I'm running out of time. It always takes more time uh, uh, than I think. So here we are, stuck with um, people who are on the losing side. But um, not only do people think the Democrats are their only political choice, but this party they cling to can't even deliver on its claim of electability. That's all we hear, electability, electability. They lost 1,000 seats while Obama was president. In Congress, in state legislatures, all they had left was a presidency and they messed up and they lost that too. But people, most people won't say so. Um, and if you, there's a couple things, I, I know I'm over time a little bit, but um, you know, you can tell you're being propagandized if you're told one month, James Comey is evil, it's his fault Trump is president. And then a few months later, Comey, hooray, he's gonna save us. Jeff Sessions, when he appointed him Attorney General, people were like, oh my God, so terrible, old segregationist. Then there was some Russiagate nonsense and he could be fired, and people literally protested to protect <laughs> Jeff Sessions. <laughs> they, well, at least we know people who are capable of still going of protesting. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up. <laughs> but that's all because of propaganda. And it's nothing but lies being told endlessly by powerful people and institutions. Thank you all very much. That was Black Agenda Report senior columnist Margaret Kimberly speaking at the Community Church of New York. The socialist government that the late President Hugo Chavez brought to power in Venezuela 20 years ago is still standing, despite the efforts of three U.S. presidents to overthrow it. Dario Azzolini is a visiting fellow at the Latin American Studies Program at Cornell University. He's an Italian who was raised in Germany and lived for years in a poor barrio in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. Azzolini wrote a book titled Communes and Workers' Control in Venezuela, in which he argues that workers and peasants are building socialism from below in that country.
We asked him why the right wing has not been able to mount a successful coup against the Venezuelan government, despite crippling U.S. sanctions and total support for regime change from the American media and the two corporate political parties. Well, it's pretty obvious that it is because there is no significant social force that wants to overthrow this government. Now we can argue why is that the case? Is that does that mean that they all think that the Maduro government is the best all over? No, they don't. There are a lot of rank and file movements that are very critical of this government, but at the same time they recognize that given the conditions at the moment, the best frame to continue with their projects, with their endeavors to change society also like it mainly from below. Any other alternative would be much, much worse. And that is something that the always very critical uh, left in the first world has to recognize. I mean, we have a similar case now in Bolivia, where there are a lot of leftists in the first world and global north, let's say, that are now criticizing Morales and it was not a coup and it was his own fault. I mean, first of all, it is a weird theory that if you ask for more than the right wants to do, then it's suddenly your fault if you get overthrown. But also the fact that what is the alternative? Now we see the alternative in Bolivia, and it's a fascist, racist, white supremacist coup. So people are well aware of that. And until you don't have any other like political project that is strong enough to oppose, I mean, that's like a privilege of middle-class people where it doesn't matter who's in power for their daily lives. And that's the same thing, I think, in Venezuela. I mean, I would have a lot of critiques of the Maduro government. People there have. But at the same time, no significant force of the poor, of the working class people, of the black people, of the peasants, farmers, etc., will support any other force or any attempt to, to tumble this government because they know that whatever will be coming after that at the moment is definitely much, much worse. Yes, Colombia is right next door, and it is the yeah. home of death squads in Latin America. Yes, Colombia has a terrifying record of more than, over the past three decades, more than 250,000 people murdered by paramilitary death squads and in part the army, but the paramilitaries alone killed more than 250,000 people in 30 years. They were like cutting off their hands and playing soccer with the heads of people. They built ovens to burn and get rid of the death because they were so many that they couldn't get rid of them. I mean, that's the dimension we're, we're talking about, that we're talking about neo-colonial regimes in the global south. It is not a difference between the Democrats and Republicans, and that's often, unfortunately, even hard enough. But we're talking about a matter of death or life for a lot of people. And that's the alternative that is in place in Colombia, where the guerrilla, FARC guerrilla signed a peace agreement two or three years ago. The government didn't comply with anything. And since then, Hundreds of activists on the ground, indigenous, Afro-Colombian, peasant activists, human rights activists, etc., have been killed. It has one of the highest rates of murders of unionists, of indigenous. There's a wave of killings of indigenous people right now in Colombia. So it's 
pretty weird when people point the supposed missing liberal standards in Venezuela and don't see what the reality is in the rest of Latin America, which is obviously supported by the U.S. because nothing on the right in Latin America happens without the explicit consent and often support of the U.S. government and its institutions. You say there's no significant social force in Venezuela in opposition to the government there, but who is Juan Guaido and what does he represent? Why did the Trump administration feel confident in appointing him to be president? Guaido was a no one. We have to say that he was like completely unknown. But he, if you look at his profile, I mean, he is the smiley, nice guy and looks like everyone the liberals liked over the past decade. He's a bit of Macron. He's a bit of of butt geek. He's a bit of like it's the same face of these young guys in a suit, thin and smart looking. So it's like he's a typical setup of media and political propaganda. So he was Mr. Nobody, like a third-line politician that then got chosen to be the one that represents the interests of the Venezuelan oligarchy, the families that have always controlled Venezuela, of international capital, of the U.S., and of transnational capital. He's allied with drug dealers from Colombia, who are again often either allied or the same as the paramilitaries. They were the ones that brought him over to Colombia when they, at the beginning of this year, they did the show with the mega concert trying then to push into Venezuelan territory. And there's pictures and testimonies that surface where you can see him with paramilitary leaders and drug traffickers. So that's the combination of forces that is pushing for a right-wing agenda in Latin America on behalf of the U.S. He was chosen because it doesn't matter if he gets hurt. It doesn't matter if he gets killed. It doesn't matter if you suddenly disappear him. But he is also someone who's been trained by the U.S. There is some obscure few years in his CV where he supposedly studied in a place close to Washington. He's been trained in CIA programs. So he is like a puppet, and that's the role he plays. And at the same time, he's completely replaceable because he's not neither a historical leader nor someone that has really any historical and leadership weight in the opposition in Venezuela. So his only weight is that he is the one chosen by the U.S., and that's obviously a big weight if, if you're in Latin America. The title of your book is Communes and Workers' Control in Venezuela, and you maintain that the existence of these organizations struggling from below is the key to the endurance of the socialist project in Venezuela. Yes, I think it's probably not only it is the key, and it is where the socialist project is. We could now argue about the Maduro government, if the things the Maduro government is doing, if they're like wrong choices or if it doesn't have any other choice, considering the international pressure, the financial blockade, the acts of sabotage, of economic sabotage, the more than $30 billion of Venezuelan money blocked on international accounts on behalf of the U.S. Citgo, who it's a company that belongs to Venezuela, 
and has the U.S. simply decided to hand it over to the opposition and block all the money that comes from CITCO. Funny enough, soon after they decided that and put in the new director's board of the opposition, they had to start investigations against these opposition directors for corruption. So I don't want to enter into details what brings the government in Venezuela to have a lot of economic measures and things that we cannot really consider on a path to socialism or whatever. But there is this huge project by this assembly council-based system of the communes. There are more than 1,700 communes, which means that it's like communal assemblies, a lot of communal assemblies. Communal, a commune is made up by communal councils, which is like a small communal assembly, which means the community assembly with about, like, depending on if you're rural areas, indigenous areas, or urban areas, but something between an indigenous area of 10 families, 20 to 30 in, in rural areas, and up to 200, 150 in urban areas. And then, like, a bunch of these assemblies build a commune. And it's always a structure that functions from the rank and file, so from these assemblies that take the decisions collectively and then send the spokespeople, not people that can like decide anything for you, but they can transport decisions to the next level, which is the commune. They have more than 47,000 community councils in Venezuela and about 1,700 communes that are made up between 10 and 40 communal councils. They do all kinds of projects. They have commissions that elaborate projects. These projects are then the community discusses the priorities. They build from community-controlled cooperatives. In some cases, they took over abandoned uh, land of privates of the state, not working state enterprises, abandoned private enterprises, put them to work again together with workers. So they are, in fact, in this crisis that is undeniable that they're in Venezuela, mostly because of like external factors. If obviously your money is blocked and you're not allowed to import medicine, and then you what? Then you have a problem, a health problem, and that's what, what is happening. But the communes are the places where the problem of, for example, food sufficiency and, and all that is solved best, where they produce something and they can like work against speculation, they can have good prices for the people to be able to feed themselves, but they have other projects they build. And the other thing is that the workers' control, which unfortunately is now still there, obviously, in the communes, but much, much less than it was in the state-owned companies, which is not uncommon in the left. Like, the times get tougher, and then people in parties and institutions think that they have to put more control in case the population decides wrongly. So... Same thing happened there in Venezuela, where the government took more control of the own factories and etc., fearing that the workers might take the wrong decisions. So the workers' control is unfortunately down a lot in the state companies in Venezuela, but it's still there in all these companies that have been occupied, taken over by workers or by workers and communities in the communes. And I think it's key for the socialist project in Venezuela. And it's also key, I think, for the world because it shows a different way of building socialism 
And I think it goes back to, let's say, what the original concept of socialism was before the idea of the party and the state stepped in. If we look back at the Paris Commune, if we look back at, let's say, socialist forms of living that weren't called like that before it was even like theorized, we can find indigenous communities in maroon towns, in all kinds of historical peasant communes, in uprisings, even through the medieval times in different places. So we see that these forms, they were based on the community, on the community, on the assembly, on taking your destiny in your own hands. And that is what is happening in these communes and in these workers control places. And it's something that is not happening only in Venezuela. I mean, we can see similar things and then always according to the conditions that they have, but we can see it with the Zapatistas, we can see that with some other indigenous communities in different places. We could see that back in the 60s and 70s, we had some attempts in this direction in different African socialism concepts, drama. So I think that it is reconnecting to a kind of string of socialism that put the people at the center. And the people in Venezuela who've undertaken these grassroots projects are mainly black and brown. Another fact that seems not clear to Americans, including black and brown Americans. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the Caribbean. (laughs) I mean, in the best case, it's mixed with a small white minority. But obviously, if people are black, they're brown, they have indigenous roots, mixed roots, and it's very obvious if you look like at pictures of opposition gatherings or like you look at pictures of the supposed opposition leaders, you look at pictures of Venezuelan opposition leaders coming together with their Venezuelan followers in the U.S., and you think, well, is this Norway or what is it? I mean, there are probably even more white-colored people in Norway than in the pictures of opposition you can see. And you walk to a barrio, to a poor community, especially middle-class community in Venezuela, you're in the countryside, and people are black and brown. I mean, that's what most people are. And the culture is, the part of Venezuela is Andean culture, which, again, then has also some indigenous influence, but most of Venezuela is Caribbean. I mean, even white people living in poor areas, in poor barrios in Venezuela, have black Caribbean culture. I mean, I lived in barrios in Caracas when you celebrate the barrio culture, the black culture in Venezuela, like Caribbean culture, it's very much based on Santeria, the Latin American version of the Yoruba. And white people, as much as black people, are there like drumming and doing everything together because that's the culture of the poor and the culture of the Caribbean in Venezuela. Now, after 20 years of Hugo Chavez's party being in power, the local bourgeoisie, with great assistance from the international bourgeoisie and the United States, they're still in a position to disrupt economic activity. They still are in control of many economic functions in that society and of much of the media. Why has this been allowed to continue? That's a good question. (laughs) I think it's a very complicated situation and unfortunately also looking at the balances of power. Who can you 
attack? Can you stop from doing something? Can you attack on all fronts at once? No, you can't. Venezuela is not an island like Cuba where you can just like do everything and then you close the borders and that's it. We're not back in times before globalization. We're not in a block confrontation situation where you have a part of the world obviously with, with its own interests, but supporting you if you're doing a counter capitalist or a socialist project. But Venezuela is part of a global system, is part of a global labor division, which is more than 500 years old, comes from colonization. Um, so it's not easy to just break out of this. It's practically repeating. I mean, it was a good thing that commodity prices were high and Venezuela had a lot of money from the oil sales to do things. But at the same time, we also strengthen this model to depend on the export of oil and to collect this money from the rest of the world, which is not exactly a socialist concept, but it's not the fault of Venezuela. It's just the problem with the global structures we have. I mean, you could also say Venezuela has been fighting against the most powerful country in the world, which is the U.S., which has put every effort into making the Venezuelan project fail. Back in 2002, elements of the Venezuelan military arrested Hugo Chavez in that attempted coup, but the president was then freed by elements of the Venezuelan military and by a popular uh, response as well. What is it about the Venezuelan military that is different than the armed forces in many other Latin American countries? They have not succumbed to the blandishments of Washington to stage a coup. It's a historical difference. Until 58, Venezuela had a dictatorship. The dictatorship was overthrown by a broad coalition of bourgeois parties, of the military, some sectors, economic sectors, and, and mainly brought to success by a broad movement from below, from unions, communists, uh, leftists, etc. So then, these sectors of the army wanted something different than what the bourgeois parties after that did, which was that they simply like agreed that they would always like get together and not have big differences and that they would ally with the US and etc. So you saw between 59 and 61, 62, there were like three different military uprisings coordinated with the Communist Party, with the guerrillas to overthrow the governments. They did not succeed. At the same time, the radical left had the strategy that the Venezuelan way to socialism would be built on a coalition between the people, the popular uprising by the people, the guerrilla, and the army. So they started infiltrating the army. At the same time, Venezuela was like a, had the oil boom. So the upper class thought it would be like in some kind of marvelous country. And in the early 70s, the military academy was practically like some kind of reform somehow so that the students of the military academy, the young officers, they would study in public university most of their classes. And that's what also Chavez did. Chavez came from the first cohort of military officers studying in public universities. Now you can imagine what it meant to study in the 70s in public universities in Venezuela, like leftist student movements. Venezuela was had a huge 
black population, it had a huge interest in the whole black power movement. Ali Primera, one of the most famous political folk singers in Venezuela, dedicated songs and albums to the black power movement in the U.S. They were looking very much at it. So you have these fermentation in the universities, and that's where the officers study. At the same time, the elites in Venezuela stopped sending their children to the military school because they thought, well, well I'm not sending my kids there. They, they, and then they're together with the lumpen from the public university. I want them to be an elite. So what happened is that they formed over decades cohorts and cohorts of officials that then became officers that then became like higher ranking and then generals and et cetera, that come from the lowest strata of Venezuelan society. So that makes a big difference. And that is something that did not happen, obviously, neither in Chile nor in Argentina nor in Brazil, which in those times were all right-wing fascist military dictatorships. So it's a completely different evolution of the Venezuelan military. That was Dario Azzolini, author of Communes and Workers' Control in Venezuela. Shannon Jones is an organizer with Bronxites for NYPD Accountability, part of a coalition from across New York City that has mobilized against high subway fares and police brutality underground. The coalition recently brought a thousand protesters to confront the police in Brooklyn under the banner of FTP. We asked Shannon Jones what FTP stands for. Well, depending on your political ideology and doctrine, FTP could mean feed the people. It could mean fight the power. But for us at this juncture, it means the police. Our action in a broad range of coalition groups is in sustained indignation and in direct response to the uptick of over-policing presence in New York City transit. At what point does policing become over-policing? Well, for us as abolitionists, over-policing begins at one officer for us. But in particular, in New York City, what we've seen is MTA police being redeployed in the train stations that black and brown people utilize. There's been an arrest of two ladies that are selling bakery goods in the train station. A young black brother was accosted and set upon and trampled and beaten by police at 125th Street. Then you also had two other egregious incidents where the 8-4 precinct and transit district 30 punched and beat kids at J Street and also drew guns on a young 19-year-old black man at the Franklin Avenue subway station. So our disgust with these actions by NYPD prompted us to pull together this resistance action to say enough is enough and we will not tolerate it. Power, including police power, exceeds nothing without a demand. What are your demands? Our demand is the complete abolition of the police department, period. We're a collective of abolition organizations, so that is our ideology and doctrine. But more immediately, a complete cease and desist of broken windows policing in the transit system and a re-withdrawal of the 500 MTA police officers and a removal of any additional police officers planned in an MTA budget. 
Many of us think that the MTA reinforcement of 500 more police is, in fact, to enforce the subway toll rules. Well, our positioning on that is this. Those MTA officers, as well as NYPD, selectively occupy black and brown stations, such as 149th Street and 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, the Broadway Junction Station in East New York, Fulton and Nostrand in Bedford-Stuyvesant, 116th Street and Lexington Avenue, 125th Street and Lexington Avenue, both of those in Harlem. And these policing strategies are inherently racist in that they occupy in order to escalate interactions that can lead to violence or death at the hands of police to black and brown people, persons that are poor and marginalized. Have the police been more provocative lately with their reinforcements? Absolutely. Even just this morning, entering the subway system at 149th and 3rd Avenue, you can see MTA police officers actually creating a line in front of the turnstiles on the platform side. And that is done for no other reason than to intimidate black and brown people. Well, they seem to think this is a test of wills. You amassed more than a thousand folks to protest the police presence in the past. Well, mass mind control media reports a thousand. Our estimates that it was over 2,000 people came out for FTP1 downtown Brooklyn on November 1st. We expect those same numbers or even more numbers coming into Harlem. And our FTP2 action is taking place in Harlem because we stand on the shoulders of all of our black scholars and freedom fighters that took a risk to take a stand. And it's also in the same location where the racist pigs beat up a young man on 125th and Lexington over candy. There's an organization in your ranks called Decolonize This Place. Tell us about them. Well, Decolonize This Place is another grassroots collective in similar vein to my organization, Bronxites for NYPD Accountability, also known as Y Accountability. And Decolonize This Place actually has served us very well in coalition as being the repository for all of the community angst coming from all across the five boroughs. They're receiving anonymous videos, pictorials about people's really, really disgust at what they're seeing from the police department. So we have these various grassroots movements from across the sprawling New York City geography coming together in actions. Yes. So the organizers for this action are Why Accountability, which is my organization, Take Back the Bronx, Decolonize This Place, Cop Watch Patrol Unit, NYC Shut It Down Crew, Comité en la Boricua, Spliff, which is a Sunset Park anti-gentrification organization, amongst many, many, many other organizations that are abolitionists in our foundation. And we are ready to take the streets and let the communities know that we support our youth, we support our street vendors, and we say no to police violence. And why is the subway system the current focus? The subway system is the current focus because police are lazy and incompetent. They see it as an easy grab to target poor people and marginalized communities as opposed to doing police work. 
And in terms of the vendors, these are folks who are out there trying to make a day-to-day living, but you've formed a political alliance with them. Well, the community has always had a political alliance with street vendors and, and vending, period, because the folks that try to make this an Emerald City, the folks that try to turn this into a fully gentrified, Eurocentric place have always made it difficult for the black and brown person to survive. So we've always had to sell things in order to survive, to make ends meet. There are people in New York City that are spending 50 to 70% of their income on rent payments. So, hey, a little bit of candy on the side is the difference between food or no food, my cable bill or no cable bill, getting my teenage son to school if he's not entitled to a Metro card. All of these things are what makes New York New York, and we aren't going anywhere. And what has been the reaction of the day-to-day commuters when they see your demonstrations? Day-to-day commuters are standing with us in solidarity. Some have resorted to organizing completely on no-pay days. There is a no-pay day scheduled for November 29th, the day after Thanksgiving, and that actually came from the Midwest, where they also have similar repressive uh, policing practices in the subway system. So this is actually spreading nationwide where people say, look, our free egress of movement as human beings won't be held hostage by the white supremacist system. And if you cannot provide decent service that is reliable and not creating a tale of two cities, so to speak, or second-class citizenship in our communities through over-policing, high transit costs, we're going to say, you know what? We're going to hop it. No pay. If you can't get it together, you don't get a dime from us. Well, of course, the city's response is if people don't pay, then the service will deteriorate. But your position is cops in the subways harassing people is a deterioration. Absolutely. I don't pay $2.75 to enter a transit system and see my people, my African people, hemmed up against the wall, frisked interrogated, jumped on, beat up, choked out. No, that's not what my money goes for. I shouldn't have to witness trauma on my way to work coming from the white supremacist system manifested through racist pigs in blue uniform. Mayor de Blasio marketed himself recently as a candidate for president, saying that his record shows he's been a boon to the city. You got jokes, Mr. Ford. No one believes that. No one believes that. No one respects that. We know that Mayor de Blasio is the mayor of real estate, and his policies and procedures are in accordance with that. This over-policing in the subway is an effort to push poor and marginalized people out of New York City. So again, we ain't going nowhere. We want the community at large to know is that the power is in the people. It doesn't rely in politicians. It doesn't rely certainly not with the police department and also not with nonprofits that hustle millions of dollars and try to dispense what they believe are charity and victimhood amongst black people. So one of the ways that we have taken control of our self-pride and collective dignity is by engaging in Swipe It Forward where we encourage folks to swipe someone in on their way out to keep them out of the hands of the criminal justice system and interacting with racist police pigs. 
also to understand that this is a collective of grassroots organizations that are completely fed up and also don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't wait for someone else to take a stand for you. We have the power. We are empowered and we want black people, brown people across New York City to know it's time to wake up, clean up and stand up against this racist system. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 